0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Li Pingchen, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Nicholas De Villiers about his new book, Cruzy, Sleepy, Melancholy, Sexual Disorientation in the Films of Tsai Mingliang. This book is published by University of Minnesota Press in 2022 a critical figure in queer Sinophon cinema, and the first director ever commissioned to create a film for the permanent collection of the Rue. Ming-liang is a major force in Taiwan cinema and global moving image art. Cruisy, Sleepy, Melancholy offers a fascinating, systematic method for analyzing the queerness of Ming-liang's film. Nicholas de Villiers argues that Tsai expands and revises the notion of queerness by engaging with the sexuality of characters who are migrants, tourists, diasporic, or otherwise displaced. Through their lack of fixed identities, these characters offer a clear challenge to the binary division between heterosexuality and homosexuality, as well as the orientalist binary division of Asia versus the west. Ultimately, De Villiers explores how Tsai ming film help us understand queerness in terms of spatial, temporal, and sexual disorientation. Conceiving of Tsai cinema as an intertextual network, this book makes an important addition to scholarly work on Tsai in English. It draws on extensive interviews with the director while also offering a complete rephrasal of Tsai's body of work. Contributing to queer film theory and the aesthetics of displacement, this book reveals striking connections between sexuality, space, and cinema. This is a brief introduction of the book. Now, let's hear it from the author. Nicholas, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being
0: here. All right. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your research interest, and anything you would like to mention? Sure. Um,
1: I'm professor of English and film at the University of North Florida, where I've taught since 2008. My PhD is from the University of Minnesota in comparative studies in discourse and discourse in society. I've now published three books with the University of Minnesota Press, Opacity and the Closet, Queer Tactics in Foucault, Bart, and Warhol from 2012, for which I was also interviewed for the New Books Network. Sexography, Sex Work, and Documentary from 2017, and now Cruisy, Sleepy, Melancholy, Sexual Disorientation in the Films of Yang from 2012. I've also published journal articles in Jump Cut, Senses of Cinema, Bright Lights Film Journal, and uh, chapters in several edited collections on queer film and media.
0: Sounds great. And then, um, so uh, look forward to actually check your interview in 2012 about your first book. And uh, so uh, thinking about your work and also your research interest, and how do you start this project on Cai Milang's film? So first, I have to thank
1: Michelle Stewart, who was also in the PhD program at Minnesota, for introducing me to Simon Young's films, Uh, probably knowing I would like them due to my interest in Andy Warhol and Andy Warhol's durational films and, and kind of queer practices of camp. So I first watched The Hole and Goodbye Dragon Inn. And I ended up publishing my first essay on Goodbye, Dragon Inn in Jump Cut in 20, uh, 2008, and that formed the basis for the book, um, specifically chapter two on metacinematic cruising in the film, also drawing on my research on Roland Barthes. Um, I'm also really grateful to those the Jump Cut editors, Julia Lesage and the late Chuck Kleinhans, for that early opportunity. And then in 2010, I attended a really formative conference in Taipei on queer diaspora, uh, which was at National Taiwan University. And I was really inspired by um, the work of Fran Martin and Gayatri Gopinath, uh, who were speaking at that conference. And then I met Earl Jackson at the Asian Cinema Studies Society Conference in Macau in um, 2014, and really this book's research wouldn't have been possible without his mentorship and his connections in Taiwan. He introduced me to Josephine Ho and her colleagues at the Center for the Study of Sexualities at National Central University. And they hosted me as a visiting scholar during my fall 2017 sabbatical with the help of a Taiwan Ministry of Science and Technology grant, which was written by Amy Perry and Fifi Naifei Ding. Um, And they've just been so supportive. Um, And that also gave me the opportunity to discuss size films with the really brilliant students at NCU. So along with my NCU colleague Jonathan Ye, who I was also able to interview Simon Yang at his studio and ask him questions about space and sexuality in his films. And he was so generous with his time. And Jonathan Ye is a brilliant translator of Queer theory in Mandarin. and it was also really important for me to think about questions of cultural translation while working on this book. So I'm so grateful also for um, Song Hui Lim, who was uh, the person who gave the initial introduction to Contact Tsai. And Lim's work has also been really influential to me in thinking about Tsai as a queer auteur. And uh, finally, I'm, I'm really grateful to Beth Tsai uh, for sharing resources that she assembled for her authoritative Oxford bibliography on Tsai, and um, and also Xi Yan Chao for introducing us. And uh, he's also an important interlocutor, also working on Tsai and queer Sinophone cinema. Um, And then finally, um, there was a conference that I went to in Malaysia on gender and sexuality in 2018, which allowed me to visit uh, Sai's filming locations in Kuala Lumpur, where he filmed I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, and to visit his hometown of Kuching in Sarawak, and to get a sense of where he grew up and the pace of life there. And I was really fortunate to be able to meet with So Guan, who made a really excellent documentary, Past Present, about Sai's relationship to movie theatres the movie theaters that he grew up with in Malaysia, many of which are now demolished, and the soon to be closed Fuho Theater, that's the subject of Goodbye Dragon Inn. So uh, it's been very important for me to be able to visit size filming locations when I can.
0: Thank you for sharing with us the uh, network that you have, and then also the different colleagues and friends, but also this multi-sited, right? Like different sites, mm. Taiwan, Malaysia, and also this kind of different location. Of your work, but also as you mentioned for Tsai Ming work, which I believe we will definitely uh talk more later. Yeah. But first of all, to situate and to uh to understand Tsai Ming work in Taiwan cinema, but also in the global cinema landscape as well. So uh first of all, um, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Taiwan cinema and then how do we understand and position Tsai Ming work in the history of Taiwan cinema and maybe also in the global context as well?
1: Yeah. So uh, Tsai is usually identified as part of the second wave of Taiwan New Cinema. Uh, sorry, New Taiwan Cinema. Um, with the first New Wave, including Edward Yang and uh, Hou Hsiao Hsien. Um, Beth Tsai actually has a book coming out this spring from University of Edinburgh Press called Taiwan New Cinema at Film Festivals. Um, that charts the connections between Taiwan's new wave and earlier Taiwanese language, popular cinema, and discusses how Taiwan cinema was critically received locally and how it circulated internationally, sometimes under the label China rather than Taiwan. Um, And she goes into that that kind of question of of labeling. Um, Sai's films extended many of the themes of urban alienation of the first wave of uh, new Taiwan cinema. And, And I think he also... Could be identified as part of a global art cinema or slow cinema movement, including Ho Xia and the Thai queer filmmaker Api Chat Pong I found it helpful to place those filmmakers in dialogue due to the types of transnational connections and projects related to art museums. And um, specifically, like Ho Xia was commissioned by the Musée d'Orsay, and Simon Yang was commissioned by the Louvre Museum to make his film Visage. Um, but also, um, Chatpong uh, has made these kind of uh, installations like sleep-in cinema installations, um, uh, sleep cinema hotel. So um, I think it's interesting to sort of see the the connections between Ho Xiaoshian, uh, Tsai Minyang, and uh, Chappong.
0: Right. And then earlier you mentioned that the Taiwan New Wave, right? And then thinking about that and then the importance of that and also the uh, directors and also the actors, actresses and talents from that period of time. So mm. uh, for our audience, can you tell us a little bit about the Taiwan New Wave and why that is so uh, significant and also influential in Taiwan cinema, but also popular culture as well?
1: mm. So uh, I think that there, there's a sense of um breaking with uh convention that the new wave represents, uh, and it's sometimes compared to other new waves like the French New Wave or Hong Kong New Wave, um, but um, uh, you know, working independently um and um, breaking with kind of studio filmmaking and uh, and really reckoning with Taiwan's modernity uh and um the kind of um yeah, the the sense of of. Um, change and um, and urban is sometimes that corresponds with that change um, that Tsai then uh, picks up and uh, and he got his start actually making television films uh, and it's it's fascinating to see in um, all the corners of the world which is his, uh, one of his first television films there's uh, characters who are um, ticket scalpers who are selling tickets and they have an explicit conversation about the difference between Hollywood films and Taiwan films and uh, they're specifically talking about Ho A City of Sadness. Um, so it's fascinating to see that he's already sort of in the films referencing the significance of Taiwan cinema locally.
0: Yeah. And then so with that, you know, uh, Taiwan New Wave and also to think about Taiwan locally, but also how this uh, uh, group of directors are also very famous and uh, uh, well received internationally as well Mm -hmm. in the film festival and also in the different uh, communities uh, for the film lovers as well. And the Mm -hmm. timing is definitely one of the great example that, you know, to think about with this kind of different connection with the locations taiwan malaysia and so but also very famous uh, and also uh, loved by international audience as well
1: mm-hmm. so
0: um can you tell us in terms of you know timing Mingliang's background and also what's the feature or maybe the signature of his films
1: mm-hmm. So I mentioned that uh, Tsai was born in Kuching in Sarawak in Malaysia. Um, He moved to Taipei uh, at the age of 20 um, to attend the Chinese Cultural University for uh, drama and cinema. And he graduated in 1982. Um, And he recalls, you know, during those formative years growing up in Kuching, he would go to movies nearly every day with his grandparents. Um, and there's two major genres of popular 1960s sinophone cinema that made an impression on him. Uh, Grace Chang's Mandarin Language Hong Kong Musicals and uh, King Hu's Wu um, uh, Like Dragon Inn. Um, and he he later paid homage to these genres, juxtaposing them with his own kind of more minimalist uh, modernist slow cinema depicting alienated urban life in, in Taipei. So Tsai's millennial disaster musical, The Hole, from 1998, features several Grace Chang songs. Um, likewise, uh, he returns to this kind of use of musical in a pornographic musical called The Wayward Cloud from 2003, sort 2005. Um, and then in Goodbye Dragon Inn um, from 2003, the movie theater on its closing night screens the King Hu Dragon Inn with the original actors, Miao Tian, and Shu uh, Chun in the audience watching their younger selves on screen while others are not as interested in watching the movie and are cruising the theater, you know, the, the bathrooms and the back hallways of the movie theater. Um, so, um, so it's interesting the way he pays homage to the films that really influenced him and these kind of popular genres of uh, whether it's musical or swordsman pictures. Um, and then he really established his reputation within that second wave of new Taiwan cinema uh, with the Taipei trilogy, um, which is Rebels of the Neon God from 1992, Vive L'Amour from 1994, and The River from 1997. And they feature uh, they all feature this lonely, rebellious character, Xiao Kang, played by Tsai's male muse, Li Kangsheng, who's been in all of his films and they offer a sharp critique of the heteronormative patriarchal family and nation, but at the same time Sy resisted his films being labeled dysfunctional family films uh, and also resisted the label gay films despite his sustained attention to queer and non-normative sexuality, um, especially cruising and anonymous sex in bathhouses, and, um, uh, which also includes accidental father-son incest in the river. Um, so uh, I can talk more about that, but I think it's interesting to sort of think about there. The defining feature is this kind of uh, preoccupation with queerness, and yet he really does resist the label gay, uh, and uh, f- at least for his films, uh, and uh, and many people read them as dysfunctional family films. But he says, you know, that wasn't really his his purpose.
0: Yeah, it's very, uh, kind of interesting to see that how Tsai kind of like see his film and then also the audience might see in a different way. And then especially as you mentioned in terms of family structure and also the family dimension and, um, Also, in terms of the characters and then the uh, homosexuality or homoerotica, that's kind of flow as the undercurrent uh, in uh, his films as well. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so um, what do you think um, in terms of, you know... Ty's kind of refusal to label or to understand his film as a gay film, or he refused to kind of like describe how the family is being represented in a film as dysfunctional.
1: Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of the family, I'll start with that one. Um, one of the things that defines this Taipei trilogy is the kind of the way the characters will recur. Uh, and so he works with a, a kind of a stable of actors like many auteur directors are known for doing, um, and they often play um, the same or similar roles. So Mia Chan is often cast as Shao kang's father. Uh, and um, the, there's that sort of sense that they, they are about the family um, and uh, and the sort of difficulty uh, experience within the family and uh, and specifically Xiao Kang's kind of rebellion against his parents. Um, but then um, at the same time, I think he he wanted to resist the, the idea that his films were somehow lamenting the dysfunctional uh, element of the family or showing how the family cohesion was breaking down. Um, which is which is one way in which I think some critics tried to make sense of his films. Uh, And then in terms of his resistance to the films being labeled as gay films, part of it is that the characters are sometimes more ambiguous than just labeling Mm -hmm. them as gay. Um, And then the other one is I think he didn't want to be pigeonholed into kind of gay film festival uh, as a particular niche. Um, So I read an interview with him where he uh, was asked by a friend to, you know, submit his film to a gay film festival. And he said, look, I just, I I don't want to be, to therefore have have all of my films be labeled as gay festival films. But he's since then also said that he's evolved on that issue. He thinks that in general society is less conservative than when he made Mm -hmm. these early films. And uh, he's personally kind of evolved in terms of talking about homosexuality in his films.
0: Right. And then to think about the ambiguous of the characters, I believe later on we will also be unpacking that there's a different dimension of the character or different perspective to interpret the characterization of the character as well. And mm-hmm. um, so with that, so uh, thank you for uh, introducing Cai Mingliang Liang and also the different um, dimension and also the different uh, work of uh in his film. So now, um, in your book, you actually uh, analyze several films, and then um, with the different topics, and then and then. Uh, so I want to start unpacking from the book title as well, and then mm-hmm. they are actually um, your uh, chapter related to your chapters as well. So the mm-hmm. first keyword is cruelty. So what is cruelty, and especially how is this present? Or represented in Cai Mingliang's film. So um, some key
1: texts for me on uh, cruising and and feeling cruisy. Uh, the first is Samuel Delaney's really excellent book, Times Square Red, Times Square Blue, um, and also a, a documentary portrait about Samuel Delaney called The Polymath. Uh, I published a review and jump cut of Fred Barney Taylor's documentary portrait of Delaney, um, in which he discusses the kind of sexual landscape of cities, including porn theaters and public toilets, and uh, these spaces that are kind of known for being cruisy. Um, there's also Jose Munoz, uh, the, his book Cruising Utopia, and John Paul Rico's book, The Logic of the Lore, which really theorizes cruising. Uh, And uh, and then a book by Alex Espinoza called uh, Cruising, an Intimate History of a Radical Pastime. Uh, So the word cruisy is sometimes used in gay guides to kind of navigating urban spaces. But I also wanted to theorize it in terms of cinematic space and affect and thinking about cruisy as an affect or a kind of potential or erotic availability or openness. Um, and then also Roland Bart proposes cruising as a, an experience that might be characterized, might actually characterize the reader's relationship to the text, which I found really useful for thinking about *Size Goodbye Dragon Inn as a film about uh, cruising in the movie theater, but also about the film spectator and the whole environment as kind of cruisy. Um, so I found it to be a really helpful, helpful word.
0: Yeah. So thank you for uh, telling us about the cruise sea and also the different scholarship, the theorization has been done for this term. And the second key word for your book is sleepy. And then how is this being represented in Tammy Mingliang's film?
1: So I have a faculty writing group at UNF um, and they were joking in response to my book proposal that my book title sounds like the names of the seven dwarfs from Snow White. Uh, sleepy <laughs> is actually one of the seven dwarfs. Um, and, uh, and you know, I like the way that that cruisy and sleepy and melancholic sort of um, uh, rhyme. But um, here I was influenced by Roland Barthes' description of his body as sleepy in an, uh, a short article he published called Leaving the Movie Theater. Um, And Beth Tsai and I actually co-chaired an SCMS, um, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies uh, panel on sleepy cinema uh, with the subtitle Affect Audience Embodiment a couple of years ago. And it was a real honor to share that panel with Elena Gorfinkel, whose work on cinema and exhaustion has been really inspiring to me. And also Jean Ma, uh, who presented part of her brilliant book that's now in print, and actually open access, uh, called At the Edges of Sleep, Moving Images and Somnolent Spectators, uh, where well, she also looks at uh, Api Chatpong's films, and uh, in connection with, with Simon Young. Um, and then I drew my book's epigraph from Marcel Proust's Swan's Way. Um, the opening uh, is about kind of sleepiness and disorientation, um, and that really inspired my thinking about, about um, the way that feeling sleepy is connected to feeling disorientated oriented, um, or might be connected to these other affects of feeling cruisy uh, and feeling melancholy. Um, so in terms of size films, many of size films feature sleep, and, um, but also insomnia. Um, often the characters are uh, insomniac, um, with characters uh, sort of watching another person sleeping on a shared mattress, And Sleep appears in the um, Chinese and English titles of a few of Sai's films. Um, So I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, which is the the English title, and then No, No Sleep, um, the latter of which is uh, one of the short Walker films, um, which is about finding a kind of temporary resting place in a homoerotic space of a sauna and capsule hotel in Tokyo. Um, And that was actually one of those sites that I actually visited as one of these many pilgrimages to Sai's filming locations, because I'm fascinated to see the way that he transforms these spaces on screen. And uh, and I'd never stayed in a capsule hotel, so I was really curious to see what that space feels like. Um, so uh, so Sleep was this kind of thread that I found uh, that tied together many of his films. Uh, and again, that's one of the features of Zai as, a, as an auteur director, is the idea of his kind of recurring characters, but also recurring motifs and moods.
0: Right. And then as you mentioned that the feeling of Sleepy, but also at the same time, this uh insomnia right this kind of yeah. experience and also this kind of like confrontation with a sleepy uh, character but also uh fully awake or just being watched they are be- yeah. they sleeping is being watched and then also in terms of the space as well and uh so with um We talk about cruisy, we talk about sleepy, and now we are moving on to the uh, third, and also the last term that is melancholy in your book title. So thinking about Tai's film, and then what is the feeling of melancholy, and how is that being represented? So the most
1: um, explicit uh, reference point or connection um, for theorizing Tsai in terms of melancholy is um, Jean Ma's earlier book, Melancholy Drift, marking time in Chinese cinema. Uh, And that was influential to my thinking about about Tsai and melancholy. But there's also a long-running current of thought in queer theory on melancholia and its relationship to gender and sexuality and uh, AIDS, the AIDS crisis, um, and also work on racial melancholy. And then the other, the the final reference point is um, Jonathan Flatley's work on melancholia and and modernism. And, uh, and an essay he has called Reading for Mood um, that was really inspiring for me in terms of thinking about uh, mood and the kind of melancholy moods in in-size films um, and I mentioned earlier Cheyan Chow has a book uh, that just came out called Queer Representations in Chinese Language Film and the Cultural Landscape and that was really helpful for thinking about specifically gay melancholy in the sinophone context and he theorizes it in relationship to heteronormative family expectations um, that gay melancholy Melancholy in the Sinophon context is related to these kind of heteronormative family expectations. Um, though I will say that, um, you know, melancholia is a, a clinical diagnosis. And because of my Foucauldian queer theory background, I'm somewhat skeptical of medicalized discourse. And so I was also inspired by Anne Svetkovich's work uh, in her book, Depression, a Public Feeling, um, to bring kind of more vernacular terminology. Um, Like she talks about feeling bad rather than depression. Uh, And so I tend to say melancholy rather than melancholia to get at that more mundane aspect of melancholy affect. And I wanted to place melancholy, which is a a really major affect uh, uh, and it's majorly theorized within these traditions that I've talked about um, alongside more minor affects like feeling sleepy uh, or feeling cruisy. Uh, And I was inspired actually by um, Sean Nye's work on uh, the idea of minor affects or minor aesthetics um, that, uh, you know, we may give a lot of attention to uh, theorizing melancholia, but I thought it was interesting to place it alongside these more minor affects like sleepy or cruisy. Uh, And then in terms of size films, there's also this um, kind of preoccupation with um, with haunting um, and, you know, they're haunted by this kind of sense of melancholy that's specifically tied to place uh, movie theaters or uh, pedestrian overpass in his short film, The Skywalk is Gone, um, and uh, and haunted by like ghosts, the allegedly haunted movie theater in Goodbye Dragon Inn, or the ghost of Xiaoqang's Kang's father and mother in uh, What Time Is It There, and Visage, um, the film that was commissioned by the Louvre, um, which is a film that's also haunted by the ghost of the French New Wave director, Francois Truffaut. Um, so there's that kind of theme of haunting throughout a lot of his work.
0: Right. So with this uh, hunting and also this feeling effects of melancholia or melancholy, as Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned, and then to think about place, space, and also the different forms of orientation and disorientation. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that, and also as you brilliantly analyze it, there are actually multiple forms of disorientation in his film. And -hmm. then so uh, earlier we talked about spatial, temporal, and sexual uh, disorientation. So I was wondering, can you uh, tell us more about how these multiple forms of disorientation is being represented in his film? And what does that mean for the characters or for the film narratives?
1: Mm. So sometimes the characters, sort of like insomnia as a recurring motif, um, sometimes the characters are disoriented in his films. Like The Skywalk is Gone is about a character who's disoriented because a skywalk uh, is missing um, because it's been torn down uh, in Taipei. So there's a kind of sense of disorientation in the really rapidly transforming city of Taipei. Uh, uh, or, you know, the kind of construction that you see also in Kuala Lumpur in I Don't Want to Sleep Alone. Um, but in terms of sexual disorientation as a, as a term, specifically, I was trying to make sense of why Sai was resisting that label gay films early on in his career. Though, again, you know, I think it was more largely that he didn't want to be pigeonholed as a gay film festival director. Um, and he has evolved on that. But I was thinking how to, you know, foreground the queerness of Sai's films, and specifically his characters' shifting or ambiguous sexual orientations. And um, so I I was looking at work by Michael Moon, uh, who coined the term sexual disorientation, uh, for thinking about it in terms of mimetic desire in films by Kenneth Anger and David Lynch in ways that I found applicable to, to size films. Um, And then I also really admire Sarah Ahmed's book, Queer Phenomenology, Objects, Orientations, Others, which adds a really important element of migration and space and queer relations to home to the concept of sexual disorientation. So I found those kind of conceptualizations of sexual disorientation really helpful for thinking about size films like uh, Vive Lamour, uh, or I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, which are really focused on what Moon calls mimetic desire, this kind of triangulated desire among characters, um, and also The Whole, um, which is about kind of uh, all of which are about queer relations to domestic space, and uh, but also migrant experiences, like returning to Malaysia to make a film about migrants and to comment obliquely on homophobia in Malaysian politics. Um, it's a, an oblique reference. Um, but the, the uh, Chinese title of the film is A Black Eye, um, which could be like a black eye from um, being sleepless, um, but also uh, references um, uh, abuse and, um, and a specific like political uh, event in Malaysia.
0: Right, and then to think about this uh, sexual disorientation, but also think about in terms of the special and also the temporal uh, dimension of that as well. Mm. And uh, in one of the chapters, we particularly talk about space. And then you earlier you mentioned in different films, there are bathhouse, capsule hotels, theaters, so on and so forth. So how does Cai, um um kind of like present these space on screen and then also as you analyze how Tai querying this space in his films.
1: Mm. So um I think I've mentioned most of the kind of published critical work on Simon. Simon Young's films, focuses on how he deals with time. Jean um, Ma's book is about marking time, uh, or Song Hui Lim's book uh, is about Simon Young and the cinema of slowness, uh, again, connecting to uh, to um, kind of trends in slow cinema. Uh, but I wanted to emphasize that element of space in size films, since to me, you kind of um, can't think about time and space separately. Um, and so I'm influenced by queer phenomenology, um, but also queer geography, thinking about kind of queer spaces and queering of space. Um, specifically, Michelle de Certeau's work on urban spatial practices and uh, Rico's uh, book, uh, The Logic of the Lure, talks about queer sex space theory for thinking about cruising and urban space like parks and public restrooms and movie theaters and porn theaters. Um, all of those spaces you know, feature really prominently in size films as kind of cruising grounds. And Sertow discusses spatial practices and tactics that are used by those who don't own property, which is really relevant to size frequently homeless and displaced characters and their uses of urban space so The kind of focus on um, the, the tactics that the characters use for, for appropriating space within, within his films. Um, and then in, in the conversation that I had with, with Tsai and Jonathan Ye about Tsai's short film, No No Sleep, about the capsule hotel and sauna, he observed how uh, people in Tokyo seem to live a kind of portable life, um, which can be seen in these capsule hotels and public baths. Um, in the film, but also in internet cafes, as a kind of rented place to briefly rest. Um, And I started to realize that so many of Sai's films carry that theme of rented space, Um, the kind of emphasis on real estate markets in Vive L'Amour, and then again in Stray Dogs, um, bathhouses in the river, but also um, it made me realize, you know, movie theaters are also rented spaces
0: right and then these spaces are also in a very um, interesting um, place because it's a public space but at the same time it's still uh, individually used as well so I think it's mm-hmm. very interesting to think about how individual is in that kind of ambiguous space is it public is it private or how do we understand that space especially with the individual I mean the characters uh, in there so yeah. especially as you mentioned uh, many. Many of the characters, they are uh, to uh, one way or another displaced. They're migrants Mm -hmm. or they're diasporic characters. And so with this, um, the next question I have is related to what you mentioned in terms of space, but also in terms of displacement as well. So that is Cai Mingliang's concern or this theme about home, but also about homelessness as well. So can you tell us more about how how Tsai approached the question of home and homelessness in his films?
1: Yes, um, belonging and home are, are really central problems for Tsai's films, um, um, but also for he, him himself. Um, you know, his film's characters are often migrant and tourist uh, or homeless or otherwise displaced. Um, but I think there's also an autobiographical element here um, in, <clears throat> sorry, In interviews, he's frequently asked, you know, where he considers to be his home, whether it's Malaysia or Taiwan or uh, or even France, um, whether his films are more uh, at home in museums than in movie theaters. So I think it it was particularly provocative for his allegedly final feature commercial film, Stray Dogs to focus on a homeless family squatting in the ruins of a city and for Tsai to specifically plan to show that film in an art museum, the Museum of the National Taipei University of Education, where the students at the university, uh, along with elderly and children, were invited to sleep over in the museum overnight in sleeping bags. Uh, And there's a wonderful uh, film that documents that and book that documents this this, um, uh, solo exhibition called uh, Stray Dogs at the Museum. So, um, of course, you know, after he announced his retirement with Stray Dogs, he hasn't actually stopped working. So I was fascinated to see um, that when he made Days, which is from 2020, uh, and it won the Queer Teddy Award in, uh, in Berlin, um, that he dedicated the film to my country, Taiwan. And I I don't think I'd heard him specifically refer to Taiwan as as my country like that, Um, but specifically celebrating the kind of marriage equality um, decision in Taiwan. And the translator, you know, clarified that Taiwan was the first to legalize gay marriage. Um, But I'm also fascinated by the fact that the film itself, Days, is about a much more marginal queer relationship. Um, It's not about, you know, gay marriage. Um, It's about a commercial sexual relationship between uh, Lee, uh, who's now much older, and um, a young man uh, who's a Laotian uh, migrant in Bangkok, uh, Anong. Um, which is kind of their relationship. It's commercial, but it's also remarkably tender. Um, and it kind of frames sex work as a form of care work for um, a long-term injury that that uh, Lee Kang-cheng has had uh, of neck pain, um, for which he sought many treatments. And Sai has sometimes incorporated those treatments into his films, including in The River, but also in in Days. So um, there's kind of qu- complex questions about home and kinship um, in in uh, Tsai's relationship to uh, Li Kangsheng. And um, and I'm, again, I'm just really fascinated um, their conversations about it. There's a recorded conversation that was screened alongside Stray Dogs called Afternoon. Um, and it's it's kind of a, an awkward conversation to watch um, because Tsai is much more talkative and Li is very famously reticent and a man of few words. Um, but um, but in it they talk about their relationship and specifically how they work and live together. Um, so I'm kind of fascinated in um, in queer kinship beyond marriage,
0: right? And then to think about uh, the uh, uh, the community, the kinship beyond the family structure, and also this kind of like the sense of belonging
1: mm-hmm. and
0: how that is being complicated as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so with that, and then you mentioned uh, Lee Kang who is who uh, is Actually appearing in so many of Thai's uh, uh, films and also other actresses as well. That um, so thinking about Thai's film individually, but also collectively as well. Especially we have these characters, excuse me, these actors and actresses they appearing in multiple different films. Mm-hmm. So uh, how do we understand? Uh, okay, so I guess just out of curiosity, why Cai, uh choose you know the uh, same character, uh, same actor and actress uh, in different films, what's his uh, decision and then why, but also thinking about this network of his films, this intra-textual but also intertextual relationship between his films. So can you tell us a little bit more in terms of this decision, but also films collectively?
1: Mm-hmm. So um, I think part of it is, is, um, that auteur directors are known for working with a kind of stable of actors, uh, and he was really, uh, I was influenced by uh, Truffaut, uh, who was known for working with a, a, a set of actors, and and has said that it was, a, you know, an honor for him to make some films with Truffaut's actor uh, Jean-Pierre Lyot, as well, and to have kind of Truffaut's cinematic universe interact with his uh, set of, uh, of actors. Um, but I think that that's uh, it's kind of interesting to to think about the way that he sometimes recombines the characters or follows the relationships among the characters over several films, and it rewards the the viewer who is able to pick up on that sense of uh, you know I've seen these characters interact or I think I've seen this type of um, of uh, interaction before, but it's slightly different from film to film, uh, and that's especially true of Chen Changshi and. Um, and Li Kangsheng uh, over the course of, of several films um, in starting with um, what time is it there in which they're shown in, in very separate places, but because of the way that they're edited together, we sort of follow up a parallel storytelling among their characters as she goes to Paris and as uh, Xiao Kang stays in, in Taipei. Uh, but then he returns to that relationship in um, The Skywalk Is Gone and in um, The Wayward Cloud, so there's that sort of sense that he can always reconfigure that relationship and kind of, uh, and also defer its consummation from film to film.
0: Right. So watching one film is not enough, <laughs> watch <Yeah. laughs> more, and then also to, I guess, continuing engage with the film, right? So right. even we are watching the second, third, or multiple ones, but also to think about the um kind of like the connecting dots. And maybe, as you mentioned, there are some parallels or there are some, uh, you know, uh, outside of film development, that is if we put this film or this narrative together, there might be something that the audience can do the work. They can piece them together or even complicate the uh, narrative as well.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it can sometimes be a disorienting feeling to to think, wait, I've seen this it's sort of déjà vu, but it's but it's nonetheless repetition with a difference. And um, the, sometimes I use the term like a f- kind of fold of meaning, where mm. the the viewer is able to notice that connect that that fold or that connection. Um, uh, and especially there are certain films like um, Visage and Stray Dogs that are more abstract, but it's also kind of um a, a, a matter of of uh, repeating his own motifs in a way that rewards his longtime fans
0: right. I especially like how you describe this the folds of connections. So theres mm. a connection there and but there's kind of folding in there. and yeah. how do we unpacking that folding or approach? that folding through different watching of the film or through different reflection between films. I mm-hmm. think this is, again, of Thai's film and then how the audience engaged in Thai's film can continuously engage in Thai's different film, mm-hmm. individually or collectively. Yeah. And uh, with that, so another connection that we mentioned earlier is in terms of uh, Thais filming, this production or this experience of filming is involving different uh, locations, Malaysia, Taiwan, France, Japan, so on and so forth. So can you tell us a little bit about Thais experience of filming transnationally and also his uh, casting of uh, different uh, characters excuse me, <laughs> different actors and actresses mm. from different nations, different cultures. So um, uh yan
1: in his book talks about the, there was kind of homophobic critical backlash to Sai's film, The River. Um, that people thought you know it was too kind of taboo-breaking to to uh, raise the the issue of incest, father-son incest, even though accidental, uh, in this film. And part of that backlash also meant that people started to question whether Tsai, as a foreigner, should be eligible for Taiwanese film funding and awards. Um, so um, so he talks about you know how that that also encouraged Tsai to seek European funding. Um, so the whole was uh, commissioned for French television. Um, as part of a series called uh, The Year 2000, as seen by these directors. Um, And uh, then What Time Is It There uh, is another French co-production. And and also his return to Malaysia, I Don't Want to Sleep Alone, um, which I mentioned kind of alludes to homophobia in Malaysian politics and uh, and focuses specifically on migrant uh, Bangladeshi laborers in Kuala Lumpur. That was actually commissioned by a, a Vienna Mozart festival. Um, and uh, and you do hear Mozart playing at the very beginning of the film. Um, so um, and then finally Visage, which was commissioned by the uh, the Louvre. Actually, it's the first film ever commissioned by the Louvre as part of their their permanent collection. Um, so I would say that you know that sense of um, transnational uh, funding or co production. Sai um, has talked about it in terms of it giving him more creative freedom. Um, But I think it also reflects on Psy's own diasporic perspective on cross-cultural communication and globalization. Uh, And um, a lot of the films specifically are about characters who don't share a common language. And so I think that might reflect that sort of experience of diaspora. And, um, and a sense of the difficulty of translation and communication when you don't share a common language, um, which comes up in uh, Visage and and what time is it there? And uh, I don't want to sleep alone.
0: Right. And then to think about this work and then receive fundings from different places and also the talents from different places. Uh, Places, As you mentioned, uh, different cultures, different languages as well. And then now this film is also, you know, receiving attentions and beloved internationally mm-hmm. and, and globally as well. So uh, with that, so we talk about Thai's films. And then um, now, uh, actually, I would like to ask a little bit more about uh, your uh process of working with tais film if that's okay and especially you had the chance to interview tai Liang in person mm. so i was just wondering whether you can tell us a little bit more about the interview how you feel about interacting with tai Liang in person and then uh, anything you would like to share with us whether it impressed you or surprised you during the interview mm. So um, I've
1: interviewed filmmakers um, before um, specifically I interviewed um, Fred Barney Taylor about his film The Polymath because uh, I was interested in the process of making a documentary about Samuel Delaney, who's a very prolific author and you know how you how to make a biographical. A portrait of someone, uh, and I've also interviewed Tsui uh, Tsan about his films for my previous book *Sexography*, uh, where I was asking him about his approach to making sort of a mixture of documentary and fiction about male sex workers in Beijing. Um, and so, um, and that was with uh, with a translator, uh, with my uh, my colleague uh, Yongan Wu, whose uh, Chinese classes I, I was auditing. Um, so, uh, you know, I have some conversational Chinese, but obviously, uh, in terms of high-level theoretical conversations, it's been really helpful to have um, someone there who is an expert in, in translation. And so uh, Jonathan Ye, my colleague from NCU, um, uh, helped arrange this interview. We had um, uh, Tsai said that he preferred the form of kind of a long conversation rather than a recorded interview. Um, but we did send him translations of my questions in advance, and they were largely focused on um, questions of space and queerness and cruising in his films, um, but he had just Finished completing a um a virtual reality film, The Deserted, and uh, and also had finished a kind of more documentary film called Your Face. And so he was really interested in talking about his very recent work. Um, and um, and you know, I, I but I had questions about all of his, his entire body of work. Um, and it was really you know a wonderful um kind of just long form conversation. I think we talked for for a couple hours uh, in his studio, uh, and it really felt like uh, much more like a conversation. Um, and uh, but it was interesting. He started it by saying, you know, like what brings you here? You know, why why do you want to ask me these questions? Um, and there was something sort of almost like, uh, Buddhist about his demeanor and the way that he asked that question of like, what, what is it that you're looking for? Um, so, um, so I find him really interesting just in, in general in interviews, um, in, in my interview with him, but also I've watched a lot of interviews. I've read a lot of interviews with him and I think he can be quite kind of playful. Um, sometimes he can be asked a question that he doesn't like, or that, that, um, that he thinks is kind of. Um, asking him to revisit his films, and sometimes he'll say, "Oh, I don't rewatch my old films." Right. So sometimes he just deflects the question. But I was sort of um, used to that, and actually like find that kind of endearing because my first book was about the kind of interview tactics and also resistance to the interview mm-hmm. of an artist like Andy Warhol, who would also sometimes deflect questions. So um, so I sort of felt like, oh, I actually appreciate this this sense of of holding your own, but also maybe deflecting during a, during an interview. Um, so, uh, though, one of the things I did ask him about was specifically his attitude towards being labeled gay or his films being labeled gay. And, uh, and he's, one of his responses was, um, basically, I don't think I've ever been closeted. Uh, and, uh, you know, his first play was actually called The Wardrobe in the Room. And he said, like, look, I came out, you know, when I was, a, when I was making plays uh, a long time ago. Um, and so instead he said, you know, if, if people have closeted me, that's them closeting me, which which is actually something that I argued in my first book, which is that um, it's possible to closet someone by calling them closeted. Uh, and um, so I, I, in general, I was very sympathetic to kind of his tactics of being very queer and his films being very queer, but also being able to set the terms by which people talk about the queerness of his films. Um, so I, I hope that I was able to kind of pay pay homage to that queerness in, in my book.
0: Yeah, and then thank you for sharing your uh, interaction with uh, Tami Leung, and then especially hearing you kind of describing your interaction and also the different uh, reflection you have about your uh, interaction. Mm. And uh, the next question I have is, so we talk about you as a film scholar interviewing Cai Miliang. And now I want to kind of ask you as a film audience. So Mm. what is your favorite Cai Miliang film? I know this might be a (laughs) difficult, most difficult question (laughs) because you you need to choose one or two favorite ones. But yeah. uh, uh, I guess I just want to hear you talk a little bit more about you as an audience and what's your favorite film. I mean, Tammy film. And also, mm. if you want to recommend our audience to start watching the film, who, uh, which one will be the uh, first one that you recommend our audience mm. to start with?
1: So when people ask me which film to start with, I usually recommend uh, the one, the ones that I started with, which is *The Hole* and *Goodbye Dragon Inn*. Mm. Um, I think *The Hole*. Um, actually, I was very happy to see that the um, post-COVID uh, nineteen that people were revisiting *Size the Hole*, which is about a fictional pandemic, but it feels very uncanny to watch. Um, and uh, and there were many articles um, that uh, kind of journalists who were. We're encouraging people in in you know recommending films to watch during the pandemic that are about pandemics, um, to say that you know that this is a really interesting one because it focuses on a sense of isolation, and it's about characters who are who refuse to evacuate, um, but they are kind of oblique interactions uh, and fear of disease uh, in this apartment building. Uh, but then it's punctuated by these really beautiful, colorful uh, musical numbers that are that are so startling. Um, so I think that's that's a really great one to to start with. Um, and uh, and it may be it may be one of my favorites, um, but uh, but I think Goodbye Dragon Inn is the one that uh, that I, resonates with me the most in terms of um, in terms of mood and uh, and the ability to sustain a mood and and pay tribute to. Um, our experience of watching movies. Um, so it's really about the audience experience. So yeah, my my experience as an audience member, that's the one that I've also really enjoyed being in an audience watching that film. Um, it feels very sort of cinematic to be in a theater watching it in a theater. So I was really happy. My local theater, um, Sunray Cinema in Jacksonville had a festival um, this mm-hmm. past spring called Sleeping Giant where they screened the 4K restoration of Goodbye Dragon Inn. Wow. And it was just such a wonderful feeling to be back in an audience again. Um, and uh, and to watch that film, you know, because it all, it sort of acts like a mirror for the audience. Um, and then other ways into to his films, if you're interested in watching uh, shorter films, I would say um, he has a very short film, three-minute film called It's a Dream that I start the book with in the preface that I think acts as a, as a kind of... Um, a microcosm of his films and his relationship to movies, and and also his kind of queer relationship to um, the family, um, since it has uh, it's his most kind of autobiographical film. Um, it, his mother is actually in it, and his, uh, Lee Kang-shin plays his father. Um, so um, so that film is just called It's a Dream, uh, and it can be found on Daily Motion. Um, and uh, and then I also recommend No No Sleep, the film that's set in a capsule hotel. I was really fortunate to be able to show that film um, at the local art museum, at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Jacksonville. Uh, and then um, and I had a very um, responsive audience. I think people really found it really fascinating to to watch the kind of very meditative pace of the Walker films, these films that he's made, uh, featuring Lee Shun as a monk, uh, and um, that are very like site-specific. So this one's set in Tokyo. Um, and um, so I think that's another uh, good one to start with. Um, though, again, it's it's less narrative, it's more abstract.
0: All right, so uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us and then all these films. And then, um, so uh, with that, we are now approaching towards the end of the interview. And now you finished this great book about uh, Cai Mingliang. Liang. So uh, what's your uh, next project or what are you working on right now?
1: Thanks very much. I, um, I'm i actually interested in following Sai's career after his announced retirement. Um, so uh, Beth Tsai and I have put together a, um, a panel with um, Corrado Neri and, um, and Timmy Chun that is on the post-retirement films of Sun and Yang. Um, but I'm also uh, working on a, a book project, which kind of follows Tsai's career and those of his actors working with other filmmakers. Um, so specifically um, Chen chien and uh, Li Kangsheng, working with directors who are not uh, Sam Yang. So um, the tentative title for this next book project is Inter-Asia Network Films and Cosmopolitan Sex Workers that looks at a kind of complex 21st century cycle of East and Southeast Asian films that employ network narratives, which are films with several protagonists in distinct but intermingling stories that specifically represent the lives of sex workers in inter-Asia networks of kind of migration, labor and commerce. And uh, analyzing these kind of cross-cultural encounters in these Eastern and Southeast Asian network films, which I'm hoping will offer a kind of timely challenge to the dominance of the trafficking framework, um, the belief that all sex workers are victims of trafficking, while also accounting for the narrative dominance and global cinematic appeal of narratives about trafficking. So, my hope is to return to Taiwan, um, to return to National Central University, since I found the Center for the Study of Sexuality, just to be such a a nurturing and and dynamic uh, place to work with my colleagues there. Um, to work on three chapters. Um, the first will be on Tsai Min Yang's film Days, um, uh, which was set in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Thailand. Um, the second is on The Receptionist from 2016, which is by uh, UK-Taiwanese uh, diasporic filmmaker Jenny Liu, which uh, features diasporic Chinese and Taiwanese women working in an illegal brothel in London. And it stars Chen chen as one of the women who works at the brothel. Uh, and But it ends in Kaohsiung, Taiwan. And I think it expresses a certain type, kind of Um, diasporic longing um, for Taiwan as home. Uh, And then um, the third is uh, Lee Kangsheng, who um, was cast in a a role as a Taiwanese sex tourist in Japan in a film called Come and Go uh, that came out recently again in 2020, uh, which is by Japan-based Malaysian director Lim Kawai. uh, And it's a portrait of kind of converging Asian migrant stories in the Umeda district of Osaka, Japan, which um, I think tries to challenge a kind of ethnically homogenous image of contemporary Japan. Um, So I'm kind of picking up themes about uh, networks and uh, sex work and migration from my uh, second book, from Sexography, and then f- kind of following the careers of Simon Young and uh, his actors beyond the kind of established corpus of his work that I talked about in in um, Cruzy Sleepy, Melancholy. Um, So I'm hoping that, you know, based on my previous two books, um, that I'd be kind of uniquely situated to intervene in in an intersectional analysis of inter-Asia cinema studies and films about um, underrepresented sex workers and migration and kind of the um, cosmopolitanism in the 21st century, cosmopolitanism from below.
0: That sounds like a great project and indeed a very important one because you touch upon many uh, important issues. And then uh, also we are looking forward so much to reading this book and then also more of your work in the future as well.
1: Thank you so much.
0: And uh, so Nicholas, I want to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoy our conversation.
1: I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's a real honor.
0: I also want to thank you, our audience, for listening to the end, and I hope everybody is taking good care and staying safe. See you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.